Well, this is the third time on the morning show that I have the pleasure of speaking with best-selling writer Mary Roach, who uh, has to her credit a couple of the most interesting books that I have ever read in my uh, long history with the morning show. One of them called Stiff, The Curious Lives of Human Cadavers. The other called Spook, Science Tackles the Afterlife. And... uh, those may be tough acts to follow in terms of uh, uh, writing books in uh, untrod territory, but uh, she has managed to do something equally interesting, if not more so, in this book called Bunk, The Curious Coupling of Sex and Science. And in this book, as, as much as anything, Mary Roach is uh, helping us explore the world of, of those scientists who want better to understand uh, our sexual lives as human beings, and the way in which, a little farther back in history, science, or should we call it quasi-science, was making some attempts to enter this world in some sort of analytical fashion. And right up to the present day, and to fascinating studies and experiments which go on all the time, and typically a, a bit out of the public uh, spotlight uh, to help us understand this really fundamental aspect of, of human life. And uh, as with the previous two books, uh, this particular work is both uh, interesting and enlightening and also very, very entertaining. And uh, no surprise given uh, a writer of, of Mary Roach's uh, great abilities. Again, this book is called Bunk, The Curious Coupling of Sex and Science, published by W.W. W. Norton and Company. And Mary Roach, we welcome you back to The Morning Show. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be back. So tell us if any single thing drew you to this particular topic for book number three. Um, in fact something did. I was uh, leafing through an old issue of uh, Film Quarterly, which is not something I regularly read. I don't even remember why I had a copy, but I came across a reference to these films that Masters and Johnson, the uh, great sex researcher of the 60s and 70s, uh, had made using actually a, a tiny camera and a light source that they had uh, embedded into a clear phallus that they were using to actually measure the responses of the sexual responses of a of a woman. When I and, and I thought, wow, sex research—that's got to be the next book because it was just this. Um, it had never occurred to me before. Well, if you're going to study sexual physiology, uh, you're going to have to figure out a way to get at it, because a lot, first of all, it tends to happen in the bedroom, it's very personal, and in the case of women, uh, a lot of it's going on uh, out of view, inside. So I thought that, that with the challenges of that kind of research were, were fascinating, so that was what got me rolling. Well, and of course, what's especially interesting is, is the way you've explored how generations ago, I mean hundreds of years ago, uh, this question was starting to occur to people. I mean, mm-hmm. the question of, of what exactly is going on and why and uh, and how in the world we can come to a better understanding of that. I mean, that's what some people were, mm-hmm. the kind of questions some were posing, and others, of, of course, were making uh, great 
pronouncements without any hard and fast information. And I mean, that, that ends up being this wonderfully interesting tangle uh, through, through history that, that you uh, sort of untie for us a bit. Sure. The, yeah. I mean, going all the way back to Leonardo da Vinci was, in fact, one of the first uh, of, of these people you're referring to who really tried to figure out, well, what is going on? And uh, Leonardo, for most of his anatomy studies, used, uh, used cadavers to, you know, to see where the parts were and what they did. And, and he, but of course, with, with sex, that would, be, that would be obviously a little um, problematic. You know, and I suppose it would be technically, uh, well, maybe not even technically possible. But anyway, he, so he uh, had a couple of drawings that, that, you know, they looked like they were cadaver drawings, but in fact they, they weren't. It was, a, it was two people having sex, and he um, was just imagining them from what little information he had. And he, there was actually a, some quite large errors, for example. He, he had this idea that there was this, physical interlocking that happened between the man and the woman, kind of like a Pac-Man sort of opening up and clamping down, uh, and that the cervix was actually, you know, doing that, which is not not true. And and it was believed for centuries that that when a couple couldn't get pregnant, they had a bad interlock. And uh, so that was, it took all the way up to the 1890s to dispel that myth. And that was um, done by a fascinating guy, Robert Latou Dickinson, who was a he was a gynecologist, and a, um, he was just a, an extraordinary guy. That he uh, he was a family man, and he was a churchgoer, but he was also uh, determined to improve the sex lives of Americans because he, he believed that it was destroying a lot of marriages. And so, anyway, he got very very interested in sex research and the, the anatomy of sex, and he had a, a technique, sort of a precursor to a Masters and Johnson, in that it was a he would use a, a test tube, not in the way that most scientists use test tubes, and he, he actually would, he inserted that into a woman and then shine a light just to see, you know, what is the path that it follows, and does it actually hit the cervix head on, and it doesn't, it just slides right by it, so he was able to debunk the whole coital interlocking myth, and, and that was a very courageous thing for him to do, given that this was, you know, turn of the last century. Hmm. Well, and of course, that's uh, that's an abiding theme in many of these historical uh, accounts you give us, is that uh, this was something that, in a sense, uh, a, a serious scientist, or just a serious person, even if they weren't particularly a scientist, uh, in a sense, to explore this field uh, was to do so, in a sense, at one's pro- own professional peril. I mean, mm-hmm. you were really risking a lot. Sure, yeah. He was, uh, uh, you know, if you look at um, John Watson, who's uh, the father of behaviorism, he was a psychologist at Johns Hopkins, and he is sort of famous for bringing human beings into a laboratory setting. And he's the one, you know, he conditioned uh, a fear of white rats and a little boy. I mean, he's, he's just known for bringing things into the lab that weren't, weren't up to that point done in a laboratory, and, and that actually included... Uh, sex. He felt like the sex is something that should be studied in a laboratory, and uh, of course, it, it was very difficult to get somebody to be a volunteer or a subject back then. And what <clears throat> what a lot of them would do is uh, they would do the research on themselves, which obviously makes them look a little funny. And he, John Watson, got uh, actually was uh, having an affair with a student, and unfortunately, he he uh, the, the the story is that he used 
himself and her, and then someone found out, and I was kind of a, uh, he, he ended up uh, losing his post for various reasons, but, uh, you know, it was definitely not, uh, this was the 1920s, and, and no one was quite ready for people being hooked up to instruments and measured while they have sex. It just was not, uh, you know, sex is a, is, it, it is biology and physiology, but it's also personal and intimate and something that you don't, uh, you don't take out of the bedroom for hmm. a lot of people. So, right. You know. The first line of your acknowledgments, you say, sex research is a little like sex in that most people who engage in it are more comfortable without an audience. Exactly. And, uh, and indeed, uh, it, it had to be kind of a tricky matter for you, at least in some cases, uh, to go knocking on the doors of, of some of these current-day uh, researchers. And, and you didn't speak just to scientists. You spoke mm-hmm. to also to people who market certain products and devices mm-hmm. and so on. But, I mean, uh, in many cases, these are people that uh, are not accustomed uh, to this sort of, of, of scrutiny about their work. And you even mentioned that in, in some cases, researchers have to uh, conduct certain sort of mainline research which can help fund some of these other undertakings, which they probably couldn't possibly get get funded from official sources. Oh, yeah, sure. It's, uh, yeah, in, in some cases, uh, they'll do fertility studies uh, that just to to get a source of income. Other other times what they'll do is um, use a more generic word in the title of a study. For example, they'll say you know, physiological instead of sexual because there are um, databases you can search by keyword and um, some conserve, very conservative family values types of groups have been doing searches and then finding these people's work and then spotlighting them for criticism or ridicule or trying to get them to, uh, trying to get the government not to fund them, et cetera. So even today, uh, it, it's very difficult for, for sex researchers because it's just, you know, you, people assume uh, that if you're doing sex research that there's, that you're a bit of a pervert. And, and you know, if sex is a, it's a basic physiological, anatomical uh, process and it, it, you know to not study it would you know that would be like saying to somebody oh you know why do you, why are you studying the esophageal sphincter we all know how to eat you know so but people tend to say that you know well why are you studying sex we all know how to have sex we know everything there is to know it's and interesting in fact, we don't it's interesting too when you talk about William Masters back in 1954 embarking on one of his first serious investigations of sexual physiology. Um, you said, given the political climate, it was exceedingly brave of Masters, then a gynecologist at Washington University in St. Louis, to undertake his project. Uh, this was to be a largely, uh, with nearly 700 participants, non-clandestine observational study of human sexual arousal and orgasm. To try to get funding and permission for such a venture in 1954 must have been, well like trying to do it in 2007. In other words, the point is, as tough as it was then, it's not much easier now, if, it's, if it is, in fact, any easier now, to engage in this sort of study openly. Yes, actually, I would say that in the, for a study like the, the famous Masters and Johnson 700 People Sexual Response and Orgasm Study, I, I, I don't think you could do that today. Actually, I think that the climate is even is more conservative. I mean, this was the, the, the 60s when the book came out. The 60s was, 
even though it's it's going back several decades, a lot more open, certainly sexually than than things are now. I just I don't think you could have done a study like that today. Hmm. You mentioned that uh, in uh, in light of the difficulty of studying human beings engaged in sexual activity, which obviously would be the most direct, in a sense, simplest way to study this, that scientists have uh, attempted to study sexual activity in in other ways, Mm -hmm. going so far as to even study creatures like porcupines. And uh, as you tell us in the book, you, you don't have to look very far or hard or long before you realize that uh, the activity of porcupines in this department uh, is not particularly relevant nor helpful to a human beings understanding their own sexual nature. No, but it, it sure is entertaining because <laughs> the, the male porcupine apparently uh, does this thing where he gets up on, rears up on his hind legs, and then at a certain point he hops around with one paw over his genitals, and uh, it's a very entertaining description of of what porcupine, male porcupines do when they're courting females, but uh, not a whole lot of overlap with human beings. Hmm, right. Interestingly, uh, porcupines, have you ever wondered how porcupines manage to have sex given all the, uh, the quills? The female flips her tail up and over the quills to provide a little uh, protection for the male. I thought that was interesting. But anyway, yeah. not again, not re- <laughs> terribly relevant to men and women. Right. Although you say then, however, for many years, this was in fact the way scientists, leery of social censure and career demerits, studied sex. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, there would be these interesting and, and of course, fairly isolated exceptions in which there would be doctors and scientists who, for whatever reason, or maybe for a mix of reasons, would, would find themselves drawn to this topic and and would would engage in study of it in fairly direct fashion. You tell in this very same story, right after talking about porcupines, uh, about uh, a doctor by the name of Robert uh, Latou Dickinson, Mm -hmm. who uh, right around the turn of the last century uh, as a gynecologist uh, would take down very detailed sexual histories of some of his patients. And apparently you were able to access some of those records. And it's really kind of astonishing to imagine a, a, a scenario in, in 1890 mm-hmm. where these kind of questions were being asked and being forthrightly answered. It, it was kind of astounding. He had a, as a gynecologist, he had a wide range of clientele, and he did some uh, some uh, charity work at the, at the tenements in, in Brooklyn Heights where he worked. And he it was, it was through talking with some of his tenement patients who were more willing to talk frankly than some of the upper-class ladies. I was talking with them that he realized that women would actually, if you asked them, they would, they would tell you uh, about their sex lives, what was you know, going right, what was going wrong, and even, even you know, like, uh, how they best you know, preferred to be stimulated and what worked for them and what didn't. And uh, so he had this uh, tremendous body of work that was, uh, you know, really rivaled something like the height report in uh, almost uh, you know a hundred years earlier. Hmm. You also mentioned that this Dr. Dickinson was one of the primary inspirations for the much more famous Alfred Kinsey, who uh, of course embarked on uh, sexual research that was really unprecedented for its for its scope and breadth. Yeah, uh, it was it was in speaking to 
Dickinson that Kinsey uh, first became interested in sex. He Kinsey had been was a biologist studying gall wasp speciation, traveling around the country and gathering uh, gall. I guess the, the gall is something that, that the wasps live in. I'm not entirely familiar with the gall wasp, but anyway, he was uh, applying his uh, uh, boundless research energies to gall wasps, and then uh, met Dickinson, and uh, over the course of several conversations, decided that this would be uh, perhaps a little more relevant and important, and that's that's what got him rolling. Hmm. It's interesting. One of the uh, studies you tell us about is something which essentially occurred in the attic of. Dr. Kinsey's home, I, I believe, I, I yes. assume the attic of his home, yes. in which couples of various uh, types and stripes were observed in this activity and, and observed very closely. And uh, he undertook this because you know, he, he believed, probably correctly, that to undertake uh, this kind of study more in in the public eye or openly mm-hmm. uh, would would have been unthinkable and unacceptable at that at that point in time. And you tell us that you know we we look now at that going on and and can be forgiven for wondering about the motivation and if there wasn't something a bit perverse going on here. But you say the closer you read the kind of observations that Kinsey and her staff were making. Uh, really, the less perverse it becomes, because they were, uh, as they were observing this activity, they were making note of things that have nothing to do with arousal or sexual interest whatsoever. I mean, it gets to be actually, in a sense, uh, fascinating because so much of it's so tedious. Yeah, they were right. He would be documenting things like the earlobes swell during arousal. You know, he he uh, he, he had this um, tremendous observer's eye, and he he. You know, all, the thing with with research like that is, no matter who you are uh, and how dedicated a scientist you are to the outsider, if you say, "Oh yeah, well we bring these people in and they have sex in the lab and we watch," it just sounds perverted. There's no way to get around that. And in any other area of science, if you if you describe what you do, very often it, it entails you know bringing something into a lab and observing. But you don't sound like a pervert. I mean, somebody who studies genetics and you know, looks at uh, you know the, the, at gene material under a microscope. Nobody's going to say that's perverse, but because it's sex, no matter what you do, people there's a little bit of raised eyebrows and uh, what's you know what's really going on. So there's almost no way to get around it. And, right, yeah, except yeah. as you said, when you read his accounts and you realize yes. he's he's observing and describing what's happening with the salivary glands. I mean right. that that starts to look a lot less sinister and more like. A real scientist, seriously interested in understanding this yeah. bodily function. Oh, yeah, very much so. Yeah, we're talking with Mary Roach about her newest book called "Bonk: The Curious Coupling of Science and uh, Sex." Among the most entertaining pages in this book are when uh, you help us understand how the the world of machinery has intersected with mm-hmm. this world, both in the sense of 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 scientists seeking to uh, understand sexual activity more clearly, and then of course the way in which some of the some of these machines and devices are patented and marketed even to the general public. Uh, tell our listeners, for instance, about uh, the twenty bucks you put down in order to uh, attend a, an event called Sex Machines. Well, yeah, the, here's how that came about. I was I was determined to 
see this extraordinary device that Masters and Johnson had built that I was, I was speaking about earlier in our conversation with the, uh, it was essentially a, a, a penis camera, if you will. It was a, they called it the artificial coition machine, and they were trying to uh, observe what was happening with, happening with the human female reproductive organs during arousal and orgasm, so I, and I, which is an extraordinary thing to have uh, built and, and figured out, So, and I very much wanted to see it. Unfortunately, from what I hear, uh, it's been dismantled. The, uh, the, the, the Masters and Johnson don't have an archive like Kinsey does. There's not really a repository of all their files and equipment and things like that. So um, I, somebody coincidentally around that time sh- uh, who works at the local newspaper gave me a press release about a uh, it was a a book launch of a, a, a actually an art photographer who had, had taken pictures of inventors who had invented homemade sex machines, uh, which are you know in concept very similar mechanically, a similar concept to the Masters and Johnson machine. Of course, no camera or light source. So I ended up um, yeah uh, paying my twenty dollars and going to this event, which included some uh, inventors and their machines who were there and. Uh, giving demonstrations, not live demonstrations, but, uh, you know, turning on the machines. and So it was interesting to see uh, uh, perhaps a modern version of what that machine might have been like. Hmm. You also met somebody uh, named Marty Tucker, chairman and founder of the world's second largest sex toy manufacturer. And among the many things that's interesting in that portion of the book where you talk about meeting him and some of the things that he has developed and has marketed is the way he would talk about these things. You said Marty talks about his goods frankly and technically as though they were car parts or kitchen appliances. He says it's just product. Everybody who works here is immune to it. It's not sexual anymore. It's like a keychain or a wallet. It's it's nothing. And of course for those of us uh, not so not so acquainted with such things, it's 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 a little hard to imagine that, but it seems to be the case that for them it's just, it happens to be the thing they make and sell. Oh, it, yeah, for someone like myself walking in, it's a huge warehouse in Chatsworth, California, and you you walk in and you'll, you know, you'll see a guy walking by in a hairnet and a smock carrying, you know, just a huge armload of these, you know, <laughs> silicon phalluses piled up high or you know, or there'll be a, a couple of women chatting and laughing while they're uh, hand staining some of the uh, the testicles of the, <laughs> of the products. And I said, I said to Marty, you know, there were these quite fairly young uh, Latina women that we were we were watching. And I said, what do you think their parents think of this? And he said, well, I asked one of them, and I said, yeah, I said to her, well, you know, what did you, what do your parents say? And they said, oh, we just tell them we work in plastics. <laughs> and leave it at that, leave yeah. It at that. <laughs> uh, it, it, in a sense, it runs kind of interestingly parallel to uh, what you tell us about rhesus monkeys. And for that matter, most creatures of the, of the world other than human beings, you say, to, I mean, in that sort of comfortable, offhanded approach to it, to any creature other than you and I and six billion other privacy-needing homo sapiens, Sex is like peeling a mango or scratching your ear. It's just something you do sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, of course, that is an interesting distinction that we draw between, for instance, the rhesus monkey and human beings, that for us, sure. this is something different. Sure, yeah. We, I, I spent an afternoon uh, at the Yerkes uh, Primate Center in Emory, outside uh, Emory University, outside, in the outskirts of Atlanta, and uh, there was a researcher who studies 
sexual behavior and hormones in females and female humans, but there's you can use uh, uh, primates are a, a good species to look at because they have the same hormones. And so we spent this afternoon, you know, in the observing deck above the enclosure, sort of watching these uh, monkeys courtship and sex. And, you know, in a, in, a way, in a way, it just felt like, well, this is wrong. We shouldn't be watching them. But, but on the other hand, they're so, you know, it's so out in the open, it's no different from them, you know, like picking up a piece of monkey chow and sniffing. And it's just, it's just one more behavior. It was very, it's very, uh, it's, oh, it's over very, very quickly. And it's, it, it, they don't have any of the uh, sort of trappings of, you know, r- romantic uh, foreplay or, or it's just, it's just something they do from time to time. I want to close with an interesting thing you mentioned towards the end of the book, again, talking uh, about Masters and Johnson. They are uh, an important presence in, in the pages of this book. And you are, at this point, talking about uh, a study which they did, um, which was very intriguing to you, which they uh, titled Persons Studied in Pairs, which didn't begin to really convey just how interesting this study was. But what I think is really interesting is when you say, as always, and like most sex researchers, Masters and Johnson were stingy with the irrelevant details. And you know from what they wrote, the, where they set the thermostat and a few other things, but, but you longed to know much more. And it's so intriguing. I think in this book and in probably your, your other books as well, in a sense, what you have been searching for are the so-called irrelevant details, yes, which yes. so often bring us the most interesting stuff of all. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I wanted to know, you know, in, in, in one of their books, they said, well, we, uh, the couples were allowed to uh, play music. And, and of course, I wanted to know, well, which music, which albums were they, <laughs> were they listening to? You know, you just want to be able to set the scene in, in your head because you're so curious, you know, how, how, what was that like, particularly with with some of their studies where you, you know, you had couples, and in some cases, they actually assigned people to each other who, who had never met, even, and, and that was, I mean, it was an extraordinary, I thought, I thought well, how did, 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 were there couples that said, no, no, I'm not going with him, you, you got to give me someone else, you know, I, and, you know, I just wanted to, you know, to talk to these people, to, to see the, the laboratory, you know, I mean, there's, you, you, you're just starved for that. Uh, that kind of detail that you just you just want to know well, what, what must that have been like, mm-hmm. uh, and for the researchers, of course, they feel that you know what that's that's not the point of what we were doing. It doesn't matter, you know. The point here's the the important stuff, and it's in our books. And why isn't that enough? But for someone like me, of course, it's never enough. <laughs> uh, so, at the end of this book, uh, did you feel a great deal of frustration that there was a lot to uncover that was hard to uncover, or or do you feel like mostly you got the most burning questions answered? Well, I I, I was a little frustrated by the inability to uh, get in touch with some of the folks who had done some of the old Masters and Johnson studies, but really there's so much, you know, I, I had to travel overseas a bit to find that, like it was in Cairo, actually, for uh, oddly enough. Uh, so I was willing to go fairly far afield to find, uh, you know, uh, laboratories and researchers who were who were uh, perfectly fine with my coming along and, and observing. So I, I felt that I, you know, I did. On the one hand, I couldn't get what I ultimately dreamed of getting. I, I certainly felt like I, uh, I 
found enough interesting and, and uh, fascinating things to fill a book. So. <laughs> well, that's for sure. The book is called Bonk, The Curious Coupling of Science and Sex, published by W.W. W. Norton. And Mary Roach, uh, it's been fun once again to uh, talk with you. Best wishes to you. Oh, thank you so much. This was so much fun. Thanks.